We read that psalm because it is a poetic celebration of what we read in Genesis 1 about the goodness of what God has created. And we see that particularly summarized in verse 31 of Genesis 1, in which God looks back at everything he had made, and it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Back in November of 2022, the New York Times featured an article about a movement called the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement, led by a man named Les Knight. Actually, his middle initial is U, Les Unite. The motto of the group is, May We Live Long and Die Out. And that motto might strike you as being a little bit odd, uh, if not downright um, repulsive. But the article takes great pains to demonstrate that uh, Les Knight is a humane, reasonable, gentle, kind soul. And it compared him to a kind of a combination of Bill Nye and Mr. Rogers. Uh, this kind of, you know, kind, reasonable, um, gentle sort of guy. But the art- article quotes him as saying, look what we did to this planet. We're not a good species. And he hopes that because of his um, activism, because of his slogans, because of what he's promoting, that there will be fewer and fewer humans until finally the entire human race dies out. Now, the reason why I cite this is, is not because I think that every part of his reasoning is completely wrong. In fact, as I, was, I, I began to reflect on it, I thought, you know what, he's actually right about quite a bit. Uh, human beings have done a lot of bad things. Uh, we've done a lot of bad things to each other. We've done a lot of bad things to this environment. And it seems like we are intractably evil. I mean, right away you see a very core component of a Christian worldview in that human beings have fallen into sin and are helpless. And besides that, he apparently sees the inherent goodness of the world, the creation that we live in. But just because someone gets a few things right doesn't mean they're all right altogether. I mean, we feel very uncomfortable with his conclusions, rightly so, because he's missing a key component, several key components. What he sees is the goodness of creation, the depravity of human nature, but what he misses is the source of the goodness. He misses that the goodness that he sees in this creation is not goodness that resides in the creation itself, but it's by virtue of its creator who will not leave his creation abandoned, will not leave, let this world be utterly destroyed, nor will he allow the, his creatures, including men and women, to be destroyed. God has a saving purpose for all creation, even creation that has been twisted and marred by sinful human beings. I think this is a very interesting backdrop as we look at this, the teaching of this text, which is the goodness of God as it is revealed in what he has created. This text tells us that God looked on all he had made, men and beasts, sky and sea, land and water, everything, and says it's very good. By missing this key component, this key teaching on the goodness of God as revealed in his creation, I don't think that there are any of us, or I, I doubt there are any of us, that are in danger of joining the voluntary human extinction movement. But unless if we miss this key component, there are things that we could fail to grasp. There are things that we tend to fall short in, like gratitude or like seeking to derive goodness out of the creature instead of from the creator himself. And so what I want to do is 
in the time we have remaining is look at this teaching from Scripture on the goodness of God as revealed in His creation. And we're going to look at the meaning of this goodness, the problem with the goodness, and then the solution to that problem. All right, we're just going to proceed in those three steps. The meaning of this goodness, the problem with the goodness, and then the solution to the problem. So first of all, I want us to look at the meaning of the goodness of creation. And, and first of all, we see in our text how important it is, how important the goodness of creation is. This teaching that creation is good uh, is emphasized multiple times. It's repeated, uh, it climaxes, and it's intensified. So it's repeated six times leading up to the very final and seventh time, and, and each of the repetitions form a kind of climax until finally on that seventh time, which if you're familiar with Hebrew numerology, seven is the number of perfection, it's the number of culmination. When it's finally repeated on that seventh time, it's intensified by the adverb very. God looked at everything he had made, he saw that it was good. He saw that it was good, he saw that it was good six times, and then on the seventh, and then he saw that it was very good. So the importance of this in our text is evident by its repetition, its climax, and then its intensification by the word very. But also, the structure in which we find this teaching gives us a clue as to the meaning of it. So if you notice in verse 10 of Genesis 1, and this is one of the occurrences of his assessment of the goodness of what he has created. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 10, God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Now, each of these words is really important here in the way that they're structured. Notice, God's speaking brings existence. And then God's seeing evaluates the existence that God brought into being. Which means that there's a really close connection between the existence of something and the value of something. So what God has spoken into existence, he then evaluates with his gaze and says that's good. So the structure of the narrative helps us understand what this goodness is. What it means for something to be good then is that it does what God created it to do. You can't twist and wrench apart purpose from value. Something is good insofar as it does what it was created to do. It does what it exists for. So purpose and goodness are are inextricably linked. And what God is saying when he's looking upon everything that he has created is this. Everything I've made is fulfilling the purpose for which I made it. The idea I had in my mind when I spoke that thing into existence is being perfectly executed. Now that is not to say that the universe as it was then would become fully what it, God intended it to be. It was as if it were a, like a rosebud tightly packed together. Yet to unfold and unfurl in in even ever-expanding beauty. But at that moment, even though it was like a, a rosebud yet to be unfurled, God looks upon it and says, it's doing what I meant it to do. It's accomplishing the idea in my mind when I spoke it into existence. And because of that, God evaluates it. He sees it and he says, that's good. So a thing is good when it does what God created it to do. We, we can think of God as as like an, an engineer, as it were. He's, he's created something. He's, he's designed something. He sees that what he designed is doing what he designed it for. Or an artist who has an idea in his mind and he splashes upon canvas with colors and shape and lines and, and symmetry and he looks at it, he says, now that is good. It was doing perfectly what God intended it to do. That's, what, that's the meaning of goodness. 
And there is a sense in which that goodness is still evident today. Everything that exists gives a clue about the goodness of the Creator. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky speaks of His handiwork, and day to day pours forth knowledge, and night to night bubbles forth speech. There's, there's a sense in which everything that you see in creation is somehow, somehow contains a clue as to the magnificent, fathomless goodness of its creator. There is not a square inch of this universe in which there is not some spark of God's glory to be found. This is true all over the place. We can see it. There are fish in the dark depths of this ocean that look so funny, they make you just want to giggle. There are elk that looks so dignified and majestic, you, you almost feel like it's going to say something important when it opens its mouth. There are penguins who, as soon as they dive into their liquid kingdoms, swim about with such grace and ease, and as soon as they hop out onto the shore, they look like they're guys wearing a tuxedo got their pants stitched up from the ankle and up. I mean, this is just the, the diversity, the creativity. And these are just examples from the animal kingdom. But, but look at the geography. Look at these mountains that, that evoke such a breathtaking response in you. All you can do is kind of gasp in wonder. There are the song of a bird that sings with such piercing beauty. It hurts your heart. This is the creation that God has made. It's all reflecting the goodness of his heart. It's good because it reflects the goodness and power, grandeur, even the light-hearted twinkle in his eye, merriment of the Creator. God is the source of goodness. God is the evaluator of what is good and something, anything, everything is good insofar as it conforms to the goodness of its source. And when God declares everything good, he is saying everything to this point in this universe is doing what I meant it to do, is existing for the reason that I made it. God said, let there be light. There was light. That's good. God said, let there be land. Let there be the sky and sea. He, saw, he sees it all. It was good. God made it. God evaluates it. He is the creator. He's also the judge, the evaluator. But you're thinking, this can't be the whole story, okay? This is not the end of the sermon, right? There, there's a problem. Okay, there's a problem with the goodness of creation. And I think at this point, we ought to acknowledge some things about this world and the evil that we see in this world that for some reason, the Bible has kind of closed the curtain over our understanding. Why did evil come to be in the first place? There's a dimension of that that we can try to explain, we could try to talk about, we could make some sense of in terms of God's purposes and what he will ultimately do. But some of those questions are, again, the curtain is closed off. There are other questions that we have a hard time wrapping our minds around. Why, why certain kinds of evil? I mean, why natural disasters? Why congenital diseases and deformity? Why, why some of these things that we observe in nature that seem to us so abhorrent and, 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 uh, and horrifying? We acknowledge that there's questions that we cannot answer, but what we can say is that there are things that exist now, or the way that they exist, they ought not to be that way. We see this, and, and again, by, by talking about the goodness of God, we're suddenly entering a story that doesn't end in Genesis 1, it begins in Genesis 1, a story that unfolds increasingly with the, with the event of, of sin 
and human beings fall into sin. So where things begin to spiral out of control is in Genesis chapter 3 when human beings saw something that looked good but they decided to use that good for their own purposes instead of God's purposes. This fruit on the tree of which God had said, don't eat that, the fruit, the tree of the knowledge and good and evil. There is a sense in which human beings decided we want to determine our, for ourselves what is good and what is evil. And in so doing, experience both good and evil. And they took that fruit and used what was good for their own purposes. And from then on, we see the decentering of this universe. We see the the curse that God put upon the ground. For example, in verse 17 of chapter 3, to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We see a decentering of the order of creation, like we talked about last week, what God had made. He had fill, it formed and he had filled. Now human beings begin to deform, to deconstruct, disorder, and to empty. What's the problem here? What is the problem with the goodness of creation? It is this. We have separated the connection between goodness and God between the good things that God has created and God's purpose for creating them, we have separated so that we say a thing is good not when it does what God created it to do, but when it does what I want it to do. This is how we have reevaluated everything. A thing is good not necessarily when it's doing what God has created it to do, (coughs) but when it's doing what I want it to do apart from God. Everything that God created was actually meant to be like a mirror to reflect his glory. And at the beginning, it did perfectly. God created this reflection, as it were. He looks into it, and in looking to, into it, he sees this, the refulgence of his own fathomless good being, and he says, that's good, because it reflected his goodness. And now, because of human sin, that mirror is shattered. It's, it's in pieces. And so there are parts of it that somehow imperfectly reflect the goodness of God, but there is a distorted picture. We have distorted it in our hearts, and because of what we have done, what we have done with creation, this, what was intended to be a pure reflection of the goodness of God now is a distorted reflection of the goodness of God. We see this all around us. We see this even in our own hearts, our own human inclinations. And because of this, there are a couple ditches that we tend to fall into, all of us do, when it comes to the things that God has created. We we tend to think that goodness is to be found in getting more of them or in having less of them. This is a constant tendency we fall into. So if once we have broken the connection between God and and his goodness and his creating everything as the reflection of his goodness. We break that connection. And then what we, then what we do is we think that goodness is to be found in getting more of that stuff or in getting rid of that stuff. For example, I can be happy or I could find goodness in adding more money, more sex, more food, more friends, more followers, more vacations, more religion, more time, all of these things, we can think by adding, by adding these things to myself, by hoarding them, then I could find some satisfaction and some goodness. Because, but we can't because we've separated the connection between what is and the one who made what is and gave it a specific purpose. Or we think, well, maybe by doing away with these things, 
I can find happiness. And that's the, the route of the ascetic, the person who feels like he can deprive himself of pleasure by adding pain or deprive himself of friends and social interactions by secluding or cloistering himself into the desert or into the monastery. If I do without, then I'll be purified and then I'll find goodness. And it, we're constantly like slipping between uh, into either one of these two ditches. By adding more, I can gain goodness. By taking away, I can gain goodness. Now, what I'm not saying is that there is not something to be enjoyed in these things. Neither am I saying that there is no value in denying yourself of these things for some time. If you hear me say that, you completely misunderstand what this is. What this is, what this is saying is that everything that God has made is good in its proper connection to the Creator. So every single thing, every single thing that I listed... And I could just list them again, just so they're in your mind. I, I might think there's more money, more sex, more food, more friends, more followers, more vacations, more religion, more time, all these things. Not one of the things I said are bad in and of themselves. In fact, they're all good in their proper place, properly connected to their good creator as a reflection of his goodness. See, this is the problem that the religious leaders in Jesus' day had. They thought that by following certain rules and abstaining from certain foods, that that would somehow make them good, make them better. There's a passage in Matthew chapter 15 when, they're, when these religious leaders are criticizing Jesus' disciples for not following these, these dietary restrictions. And they said, why, why are your disciples not going through the process of washing their hands in the, in the ritualistic way or abstaining from certain foods? And Jesus says, don't you know that what goes into a person is not what makes them bad, what defiles a person? In other words, it's not what you eat, it's what's in your heart. For from the heart, he said, proceeds evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. You see, we, we tend to think that goodness or badness is to be found in things, either adding them or subtracting them. And the, the reality is more like this. The good things that God has created, they're good only in so far as they fit God's good purposes and reflect God's good character. So, for example, an eyeball is a really good thing, right? It's a, and the more you, I was just thinking about this quite a bit this past week, how good an eyeball was. Just turn and look at, look at someone's eye near you. Just look at their eye. I mean, there, there's, something, there's something beautiful about it. There's something... It's not only beautiful, it's useful. I mean, your eye is the way in which you drink in visibility, colors, and shapes and lines and depth. You drink it all through your eyes. It's so useful. You use it to drive, to write, to enjoy things. But beyond that, there's a beauty to them. The placement on the face, the color, the symmetry, the detail, the way they're wreathed with eyelashes and an eyebrow. I mean, there, there's something... Bold. Now, when you take what is beautiful and we say, now that is so beautiful, I think I'm going to put it on my wall. I'm just going to have a little decoration on my desk. I'm going to keep one in my purse. They're just so nice. You know, not only does it become somehow less beautiful, it's also somehow less useful. It, it doesn't, when, when you disconnect a thing from its proper place, you rob it of both its beauty and its usefulness. And the word good in the Bible, the, word, the Hebrew word is, is tov, it encompasses both beauty and usefulness. I mean, this word is used to describe uh, utilitarian good, like the goodness of a field or the goodness of a house. It's used to describe aesthetic good, like, like the beauty of a woman or the handsomeness of a man. I mean, this, this word is like a Swiss 
army knife. It has all kinds of uses, including its utility and its aesthetic value. But when we wrench a thing away from its purpose, we we deprive it both of its beauty and of its usefulness. And this is what we've done with God's good creation. We've we've denied this teaching of Genesis 1 that something is good only insofar as it reflects the goodness of its creator. And we say, well, that thing is good only insofar as it it is a tool for my purposes. And and then I'll wrench it out of its proper place, use it for my purposes, and then I become confused and frustrated why it won't yield the satisfaction I expect it to yield. We do that with our work. We do that with our children. We do that with everything there is, everything good God has created. We have this inbred tendency to take it and twist it and think it's all about us. That is what has gone wrong with the goodness of God's creation. It's not that what God has created becomes less good. It's that we've brought it and used it, attempted to use it for our own purposes. What's the solution then? If you think that this bent of our heart is so permanent that it cannot be unbent and the only solution is to do away with it completely, then you can join the ranks of the human extinction movement. But what hope is there if not for humans just to go away? But the teaching of God's, the goodness of God's creation also includes this. God is so good and so powerful, he won't abandon what he has created to destruction. That's the message of of the entire Bible is that salvation is of the Lord. God is on a mission to restore his fallen, broken creation, including the very creatures that should have cultivated this creation to be a garden of his glory. He is on a mission to restore them, not to destroy them, not to wipe them off the face of the world, but to restore in them the thing that he wanted created from the very beginning, a people that would love and serve and honor him. what God is doing. But how is he going to do this? How will he restore human beings like you and me that tend to use his good gifts for our self-centered purposes? Well, the solution is hinted at right in the passage that I read to you a little earlier. The words of, of the curse that God gave to Adam, or about the ground that Adam was to till before that, God gave a word to the serpent himself, that it was the agent of human beings' temptation and destruction. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, is well known as the proto-euangelion. You heard the, you heard the word proto, first, euangelion, a message of good news, good tidings, the gospel, the proto-evangel, the first occurrence of the gospel where God says, in the darkest of all nights, I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, and the woman, that's Eve, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. That is, a descendant of the woman is going to crush the head of the tempter, even though in so doing, that tempter, that serpent, would bruise the heel of the woman's seed. What is he saying here? What becomes, what is said in general terms is increasingly clarified through the unfolding story of Scripture until we realize this in the New Testament, that here is how God intends to rescue his rebellious creatures, by coming himself into creation. God enters what he has created. The artist paints himself into the canvas. The author writes himself into the story. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, when Jesus, the Son of God, the very word of God, the very agent of creation, entered 
this world as a little baby. He was entering a world that he had made, but that it had been marred by sin. Can you imagine how it must have broken the good heart of God to see what had become of what he had created? Genesis 1.31, he looks on everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. In the first century A.D., now the Son of God walks upon the face of this world, and everything is marred, twisted, power being used to abuse people, demons infesting people, sickness, mental illness, all kinds of diseases. And Jesus comes into this creation for 30 years he walks upon the face of this world and then, or this earth and then near the end of his life things that he had created were used to kill him. He hangs upon a cross, wood, from a tree, trees having been created on the third day of creation. Suspended between heaven and earth, sky and land created on the second and third day of creation respectively. There when he hangs there the sun hides its face, it's blotted from the sky. What's happening? Here's what's happening. The creation itself is killing its creator. How can this be? Why is this happening? Jesus was suffering for our sins in our place. Jesus was taking upon himself the punishment that we ought to bear. Jesus was absorbing in himself. He was bearing the very wrath of God. The, the, the spear of humanity's rebellion was, as it were, being pointed right at Christ. Instead of us, instead of us being ruined and destroyed, Jesus was standing in our place. In my place, condemned he stood. He became sin for us who knew no sin so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. So that we might become new creations. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. You see, God is so committed to the restoration of what he has created that he will himself enter creation, bear our sins and the penalties of it so that we, you and I, could become new creations. But that's not the end of the story because Jesus came the first time to solve the problem of the guilt of our sin but he is coming a second time to remake this world as the king of kings and lord of lords. You see, he came the first time as a sacrificial lamb to bear the penalty for our sin, to suffer and die and rise again. He will come a second time as a lion. This is a song, there's a song we often sing at Christmas time, Joy to the World, but there's a verse of it that speaks of Christ's second coming. No more shall sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. There is one day when, when there will be no thorns. There will be no frustration in our work. There will be no sin and sickness and sadness because he will make it all new again. But this is why, my friend, you can trust the goodness of God's heart. If the problem began when human beings begin to doubt God's goodness, and God comes again into his creation to prove his goodness, then you can trust him. You don't have to doubt him. You don't have to think that he's a God that is against you because he's a God that's for you. 
What more, what more could he do to prove his love for you? What more could he give to you to tell you that he is a good God? Don't you see? Yes, in creation, you see the power of his mind, his brilliance, his creativity, his transcendence, his awe-inspiring greatness. But in the cross, you see the greatness of his love and of his goodness to you, my friend, so you can trust him. You might think this sounds too good to be true. Me? Little old me? Shame-filled guilty me no I don't feel good I feel condemned ah but if you trust in Jesus Christ who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died you see you you have perfect righteousness you have perfect goodness if you take refuge in Jesus Christ and believe that what he did on the cross is for you there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus you can enjoy the full assurance that God is for you that he does love you and that's never going to change that's the good news of the gospel that's the good news that you and I go through from Monday through Saturday forgetting about unless we constantly remind ourselves of continually that God is a God who is good to us And he shows us this goodness, not only in everything that he has created, but in the fact that he has made us new creations in Jesus Christ, giving us new desires, a new destiny, a new relationship with him. All these things are new. All things have become new. Old things have passed away. What does this mean for us then? Well, in light of God, the goodness of God, as it is displayed in his creation and proven in his new creation, there are a few things that we can do in response. First of all, 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to his uh, protege or uh, the, a man he's mentoring for the ministry, Tim, Timothy. He's writing to warn Timothy against certain people who are teaching that the way to achieve goodness is by abstaining from all kinds of things, marriage, different kinds of food. And Paul says, no, no, no. Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with what gratitude see because everything God has created is good and if you see God as the good source of what that is you can be grateful you can be grateful for what God has created you know so many of us forget the value of gratitude and the reason why we forget it perhaps the main reason or the central reason why we tend to be so ungrateful is because we've snapped the connection between the the goodness of the thing and the source of that goodness that is God himself. We're trying to get out of that thing what it can't give us and because it's not giving it to us we feel ungrateful and we're going on from one thing to the other expecting it to satisfy a need only God can give us and we go around just feeling really grumpy and ungrateful. When in fact God is showering us with blessings from every direction and saying what a good God I am. Look, you have a house to live in. You have friends around you. You, you have food to eat. You have shelter over your heads. You have clothes to wear. I mean, can't you be grateful? Look at these things. These are evidence of God's goodness to you. Oh, what do we do? We look and we say, well, I don't have as, no, as much as the person around me. I, I seem to have less. And, and what we do is we end up robbing ourselves of joy by comparing ourselves with others whom God has blessed in unique ways. But don't you see that God has blessed you? That person has to be grateful for what God has given them, but you have to be grateful for what God has given you. 
We think that the goodness and the satisfaction is to be found in the thing itself when in fact it's not. It's only found in the giver. Are you grateful this morning? Children, are you grateful for what your parents have provided for you? There is something powerful and heart-shaping in a good way from simply saying, thank you, thank you. Even in the very act of saying, I appreciate that, thank you. It, that very act, even, even if the gratitude isn't a feeling that's just bursting from a heart, the very act of saying thank you can, can rebuild gratitude in our heart and mind. Do you thank others for what they've done to you and for you? Are we a grateful community of people? recognizing the, the gifts and the accomplishments that God has been so pleased to do to other people, through other people toward, toward us. Because everything God has created is good, and it's only good insofar as we see it as a gift from God. You can be grateful. Here's a second point of application. You can have hope. You can have hope. There, there's something very depressing and disheartening about the, the, the thought that the best hope for the human race is to make itself go extinct. I mean, that is just a kind of a hopeless sort of mentality. But I think we, we ourselves can fall into this hopelessness. We can forget that God will not abandon us because God is creator, not only creator, but he's the recreator. He's the one that not only made everything from the beginning, but can also bring to life what was dead and heal what was broken. God, we can have hope. I wonder if you feel hopeless this morning. God is a God of hope. He can give hope. He can give hope as you fix your heart on the work of Jesus Christ. And when you do the Holy Spirit who comes because of the preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, he can fill you with hope. You may feel hopeless now, but you can look to the day in a recreated new heavens and new earth. The Bible tells us, Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, he will wipe away every tear. Yeah, there are tears now. There are things that Man, if we were to start talking about it, it would just, it would bring a, a, like a sob to your chest like in a, in a moment because there are burdens that you bear and there are things or situations in your life that you just feel, they, they seem to be utterly hopeless. But God is a God of hope and he gives hope. Romans chapter 15 verse 13 was a text that I preached on just this past Friday at the memorial service for our dear departed sister Estelle Koenig. It says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And finally, you can have purpose. You can have purpose. Sometimes we can feel hopeless in the things that we create. Now, we're not creators in the sense that God is. We can't bring matter out of nothingness. We can't say, let there be light and there be light. But we do have a responsibility to make things to work to, to form things. Whatever your work is, you can work with purpose because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Your work matters. Your hobbies matter. Your interests matter. Matters. Your health matters. Things that God has given you that, you're, that are good for you to do, this matters. This has purpose to it because everything God has created is good and we can see the goodness of it as it reflects the goodness of the heart of our Creator. And God looked at everything he's made, and behold, it was very good. Yes, we have twisted things for our own self-serving purpose, but God, by his grace, can bring salvation to our hearts and to this world. Would you bow your heads?